0: This morning's scripture reading is from Mark, the first chapter, verses 14 through 20. If you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, if you
1: don't have a Bible with you, I encourage you to uh, grab the Bible that is in the rack in front of you and turn to the page as indicated in the bulletin. You'll find our passage there. And uh, also, if you don't have a Bible and you'd like to take one with you, we have a number of copies out on the black table in the narthex. Be sure to grab one on your way out this morning. Uh, The song One Moment in Time was written for the 1988 Summer Olympics in Seoul, South Korea. It was performed by Whitney Houston during the opening ceremony and then a montage of all the U.S. athletes receiving their medals was put together and the song was played again at the end. And if you're over a certain age, you can still hear Whitney Houston singing that song, so I'm not going to. It would be fun though, wouldn't it? Uh, But you know the words, right? Give me one moment in time when I'm racing with destiny, then in that one moment of time, I will feel eternity. Right? In our text this morning, Jesus is talking about one moment in time. Not a moment in which he's racing with destiny, but in which he's fulfilling prophecy. Not a moment in which he feels eternity, But in which eternity, as it were, is breaking into history. And not a moment that ended with the awarding of a medal, but a moment that signified the start of a new age in the history of mankind. That's all contained in this passage. In fact, it's all in the first two verses of this passage. When Mark writes, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, there is a page being turned there, right? John is the last prophet, if you will. He's like the last Old Testament prophet, and he's in prison. Jesus is now beginning to preach. Jesus, the Son of God, is beginning to preach. He's in Galilee in the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, turn of a page, and fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus says the time is fulfilled in verse 15. And that word time here is important. It's not the, from the Greek word chronos. that has to do with kind of, you know, sequence of time. It's from the Greek word kairos, which has to do with a, a moment in time, a significant moment in the span of time. This is one moment in time. Of ultimate significance that Jesus is talking about. When he says the kingdom of God is at hand, he is saying we have arrived at the start of a new age in redemptive history. So when we come to this text, we don't want to hear Whitney Houston, right? I hope that you won't leave here going, one moment in time. Don't do that. But we don't want it to feel like an overly familiar Sunday school lesson from our childhood either, right? We we want it to be able to have some kind of an ongoing impression, what I would say is an ongoing reorientation to what's true. Remarkable things are happening in this passage. Again, this is Jesus on the scene preaching for the first time. And it's not just the things that he says. It's the things that he's doing. The calling of his first disciples to himself. Now, that doesn't mean that every time we read this passage or or hear it being read, we should have an emotional reaction like perhaps we did the first time we read it or the first time we heard it read. What I am saying is that whether we're reading it or hearing it for the second time or the thousandth time... It needs to serve to reorient us to what is real. Jesus talks about the kingdom of God in this passage. That's real. It has real-world implications for today. He talks about repentance and belief in the gospel in this passage. That's profound. But maybe it's a little too familiar and Mark tells us about the calling of the first disciples. And, you know, we have uh, that illustrations that hung on the wall in our children's Sunday school class of, of Middle Eastern men 2,000 years ago on a boat and, and, and mending, mats, mending nets or throwing them out to sea. And, and that's fine, but we also don't tend to think about the personal significance for us, for them and for us of Jesus's call. So three things we're going to look at this morning. First, the present reality of the kingdom. The present reality of the kingdom. Second, the radical reorientation of repentance and faith. If I were Scottish, I'd be rolling all those R's. That would be so cool, but I'm not. The radical reorientation of repentance and faith. And then third, the personal nature of the call. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to this text, we do pray that by your Spirit, you would be working through it in our hearts. Lord, help us to be reoriented by your grace to the things that are true, of ultimate importance, that ought to be shaping our lives now, even now as we look to the return of our King, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right, so the present reality of the kingdom. How should we think about the kingdom of God? And I'm going to throw out seven words... They all begin with P. Seven words. It's a good biblical number. They all begin with P because I'm a pastor and we alliterate things. It can get dangerous at times. I could go on and on for too long. But seven le- words that all begin with the letter P. Here we go. Presence, peace, power, promise, preview, people, and place. So when we think about the kingdom of God, presence, peace, power, promise, preview, people, and place. Presence. Presence. Presence, God's presence. Jesus is God in the flesh. He is come to lead a new exodus, to lead his people out of the wilderness of their bondage to sin into that day, that age in which Jesus Christ returns and, and leads us into the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells, where sin is done away with. Here, God has drawn near. Jesus is Emmanuel, right? He's God in the flesh presence with Jesus announcing the presence of the kingdom. The kingdom's near because the king is near. Presence. Secondly, peace. The angels at Jesus' birth announced peace on earth. Jesus came offering peace. He did not come to gather an army to throw the Romans out. He came offering peace, reconciliation with God. Power power. Third, power. Jesus cast out demons. We're going to read about that as we make our way through Mark. That was meant to be a demonstration of the power of God, the power of the kingdom to cast out the power of darkness. It was ultimately demonstrated through his death and resurrection when Satan's head was crushed, as it were, under the weight of the cross. Presence, peace, power, preview, the healings that we're going to see Jesus doing as we read through Mark are not simply meant to be a bare demonstration of his power. They are meant to give a preview of what the kingdom of God is like, a place where there's no sickness, where there's no, you know, ill health, where there's no suffering. Presence, peace, power, preview, promise. Jesus is preaching this gospel promise. If you, if you repent and believe in the good news of the kingdom... You will be saved. It's a reminder that the gospel is more than just about our past. Forgiveness of sin. It's about the future. The kingdom of God that is coming. Presence, peace, power, preview, promise. People. God's people that make up this kingdom will be a people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. That, too, is fulfillment of promises that were made to Abraham. They're now coming true. Jesus. He will primarily focus on preaching to the Jewish people. He'll begin to stretch into preaching to Gentiles, but then throughout the book of Acts, it goes to the nations. Presence, peace, power, preview, promise, people, place. Place. One day the kingdom of God will be established on earth. Jesus will return. Evil will be judged. All creation will be made. New. God's people will dwell on a new earth, under new heavens, made new by the grace of God. Presence, peace, power, promise, preview, people in place. What does that mean for us today? Well, let's go back through those seven Ps. Presence. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 14 is talking to the church about how they ought to organize their worship and what ought to be characterizing the way that they relate to each other in worship so that when, not if, non-believers are present with them, they will come by God's grace to worship God and acknowledge that God is really present among them. And so the question is, as we are gathered together in worship, are we praying that God will work in such a way? Are we open to the work of God in our lives? And are we organizing our worship in such a way that by God's grace, not when, I'm sorry, not if, but when non-Christians are present with us, they are brought by God's grace to say, you know what? God is here. By his spirit, God is here. Peace The church is not called to wage war against the world. We're called to live at peace as far as possible with all people, and we're called to offer peace. Reconciliation with God. That's kingdom work. That's the reality of the kingdom today. Presence, peace, power. Not power from ourselves for ourselves. Power from God for others. Power to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. Power to take up our cross and carry it. Power to take up the basin and the towel that we might wash the feet of other people. Power from God that is made perfect in our weakness. Presence, peace, power, promise. We extend the promise of the gospel in Jesus' name that all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Preview. When we do the works of the kingdom, when we feed the hungry when we visit those in prison, when we care for those who are sick, when we show mercy, when we seek justice, we are giving a preview of the kingdom where there is perfect justice and perfect peace, where mercy has been shown, where there is no more sickness, suffering, sorrow, or death. People, we are called to demonstrate In our lives together as the church, unity in the midst of great diversity. If the kingdom of God is a people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation, then each church and churches in each place are called to demonstrate as much as is possible great unity in the midst of great diversity. That is so important in our age of polarization, in our age that is marked by tribalism, The church has an opportunity to demonstrate the kingdom reality of what it means to be kingdom people as we demonstrate great unity in the midst of diversity. And then place. Every place matters to God. Wherever we are, we work for the good of that place. Whether we are working to organize finances for our business, whether we are working to build structures, be they societal structures or literal structures in the city, whether we are working to build into the lives of our children, whether we are working to till the soil, to, to get rid of the weeds and make something grow, we are pushing back the effects of the fall in a place that matters to God. Jesus cares about place. He came to make his blessings known far as the curse is found. Presence, peace, power, promise, preview, people, in place. This is what's real. This is the reality of the kingdom of God. It broke in with Jesus Christ. It was anticipated for thousands of years prior to Jesus. The prophets anticipated these things beginning to come true in the Messiah, and they had become, begun to come true With Jesus Christ. We're called to make this invisible kingdom visible as the church now until Jesus Christ returns. The present reality of the kingdom. Second, the radical reorientation of repentance and faith. The radical reorientation of repentance and faith. Let's talk about repentance for a minute. Last week was the Super Bowl. Uh, As part of the Super Bowl festivities, the top 100 players of all time were chosen. The fans were able to choose the top play of all time. For my Pittsburgh Steelers fans, it was the, the Immaculate Reception. For those of you that aren't football players or fans, you're going, what in the world is he talking about? Google it, the Immaculate Reception, all right? There was one player who didn't make the top 100 and he probably should have but he was involved with one play that was considered really the worst play of all time, the most infamous play of all time. On October 25th, 1964, the Minnesota Vikings were playing the San Francisco 49ers. Jim Marshall, defensive player for the Minnesota Vikings, recovers a fumble. He runs 66 yards, big guy, he was a defensive lineman. 66 yards, two-thirds of the length of the football field to the end zone. The wrong end zone. The wrong end zone. Safety is scored, two points for the, uh, safety occurs, two points for the 49ers. And a free kick, which means that Jim Marshall can't go hide in the tunnel. He's got to be right back on the field to play defense again. Jim Marshall needed to turn around. Now, you go watch the, the video footage of it, and you just see this guy, you know, running. All of his, all the other players on the field are just looking like, what is he doing? His teammates are running down the sideline with him going, you've got to turn around. You're going the wrong way. Guys, that's Repentance. That is repentance. Jim Marshall needed a radical reorientation to reality. He needed to turn around and head the other way. That is repentance. It's realizing you're running in the wrong direction and turning around. And I'm afraid we don't tend to take repentance that seriously. We're like Jim Marshall. We're running down the field. We're heading toward the wrong end zone. We're heading into sin. And by God's grace, we realize that, and we stop just outside the end zone. And we linger there for a little while. We put our foot across the goal line when nobody's looking, and then pull it back. When we ought to be turning around and running the other way. Jim Marshall had his teammates running down the sideline going, you got to turn around. You got to go the other way. The world, the flesh, and the devil all conspire to say, keep running. Keep running. The world says true freedom is found in that end zone. Keep running. The flesh says true fulfillment is found in that end zone. Keep running. The devil says your coach doesn't want you anyway. Keep running. Realizing that helps us realize how much we need not only repentance to be radical, but for the gospel, for belief in the good news to be radical, to be reorienting. Because if that is the reality of sin in our lives, and repentance is a call not just to get yourself to stop, but to actually turn around and run the other way, when you realize that, then you realize how much we need not advice, but news. Not good advice, but good news. News about the fact that Jesus Christ came and lived the life that we could not die, or could not live and died the death that we deserve to die. He went into that end zone for us to bear the punishment for our sin. He did not sin, but he became as sin. He took the punishment that we deserve. And in the resurrection, he scored in the correct end zone that we might have the victory. That's the good news. It's about something that Jesus did for you. And the good news is that Jesus is there with you where you are right now. Even if you are on the edge of that wrong end zone, lingering there, hopping across every now and then, Jesus is there. He's not standing back at the other end of the field saying, figure out a way to get back here. He's there. He loves you where you are. He loves you as you are. But he loves you too much to leave you where you are and as you are. And so he says things like, come and follow me. The gospel is all about reorientation, being reoriented to that which is real. In his kindness, God keeps giving us this gift of repentance and faith because you know and I know this isn't a one-off thing. It is in our nature to run toward the wrong end zone. And Jesus is always giving us repentance and faith that we might look to him and not just turn away, but turn around and run the other way. Let's turn third and finally to the personal nature of the call. Uh, Let me read verses 16 through 20. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew and uh, the brother of Simon casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and followed him. The call here, and the call that continues down to this very day as the gospel proclamation goes out, is a gracious invitation. Is a gracious invitation. Jesus said, follow me to these fishermen. You realize that in that day and age, rabbis did not go looking for disciples. It was the other way around. If you wanted to study under a certain rabbi, if you wanted to be his disciple, you went looking for him. And then you asked him, could I be your disciple? Will you be my teacher? Jesus turns that around. He actually goes looking for them and calls them to follow him. It reminds me of when uh, Wendy and I and two of our four kids, who were born at the time, moved to Montana. Missoula, Montana, 1995, so I could pursue a graduate program in ecology at the University of Montana. There's one problem, though. I hadn't actually been admitted to the program. It's a minor detail. When you move your family 1,837 miles to start a program that you haven't been admitted to. Now, three years, and typing this up yesterday, I was like, I can't believe I did this. (laughs) So this is both humorous and humbling at the same time. right? I had applied to this program three years in a row, and obviously none of those three years that I had been admitted to the program. I found out later that they get a couple hundred applicants every year, and they only take like two or three. I was never gonna get in to that program. But back in year one, I had also applied for married student housing on campus at the University of Montana. And three years later, I get a letter in the mail. You've got a place to live. And so I'm like, well, what what do we do with this? So I called, you know, you can't get online. It's 1995 for us. There was no internet. So I called the people in the housing department at the University of Montana and said, you know, I haven't been admitted to the program yet. I guess I have to give up that apartment. And they said, actually, you can move here and you can take classes as a non-matriculated student. And by taking classes as a non-matriculated student, you're considered a student. So you can live on campus. And so that's what we did. I moved my family 1,837 miles to Missoula, Montana, to start a program, hopefully, that I hadn't been admitted to. And one of the first things I did when I got there was schedule a meeting with this professor that I was kind of interested in studying under, right? So I schedule this meeting, I show up for this meeting. There, his office is, uh, he shares his office, basically an office slash lab. He shares it with another professor. And, and this is what happened. I, I walked in, the professor looked at me, he looked to the other professor, said something in French, they both laughed, and then he looked back at me and said, come in and have a seat. And one of the first things he said, if not the very first thing he said was, you know, sometimes students move here and they think they can take classes as a non-matriculated student and get invited into the program, and it never happens. Eek. And you know, it doesn't surprise me that he didn't take me on as a student. I had nothing to offer him. He he already knew. I mean, I had applied three times. I hadn't been invited into the program. There was nothing in me to commend me to him. He knew all he needed to know. I would be of no advantage to him in his work. Just the opposite takes place with Jesus. Jesus goes after people who would be of no value to him in his work. Simon and Andrew and James and John had nothing in them to commend them to him. But Jesus goes after them and calls them to him. Come follow me. Be my disciples. And just like me with that professor, we have nothing in us to commend us to Jesus. We are of no advantage of him to his kingdom work. But he left heaven to come to earth in order to call people, people like you, people like me, to follow him. The call is a gracious call. It is a gracious invitation. And then secondly, this call leads to transformation and mission Transformation and mission. Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I will make you to become fishers of men. He called them to leave what they knew, to make him their priority, that he might make them of indispensable worth to his mission. That's what happened. They went from being fishermen. And that, that, don't think, well, they were fishermen. That meant they were scum of the earth. They, they, they were doing significant work. They had real vocations. They were probably, you know, doing fine financially. They owned their own boats. So the bottom line is they had nothing in them that would commend them to him. Jesus came and said, follow me. Leave that which you know. Leave your vocation. Leave your family. In the sense of making me your priority now and not that. And follow me, and I will make you indispensable for my kingdom mission. That same dynamic is true to some degree for every single one of you if you believe in Jesus, if you're a Christian. Paul in Ephesians 2.10 says, We are Christ. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which he prepared in advance for us to do. We have nothing in ourselves to commend us to him. Jesus comes and calls people and says, I want to make you that which, what I, which I have prepared you to do. I have works in mind for you such that I will make you indispensable to my kingdom work. Peter in 1 Peter says we all are like living stones being joined together to build this church. Every Christian has a role to play in the building up of this kingdom. But there's nothing in us to commend us to him. Jesus instead comes and says, I will make you to become workers in my kingdom. Now for some of you, That means that you are being called to do extraordinary things that will be seen by all. Some of you are being called to go to the mission field. You're being called to to go into ministry, to do something. And you feel that tug on your heart right now. When the disciples, when Mark tells us the disciples immediately went to follow Jesus, they dropped everything to go follow Jesus, my challenge to you is if you have that sense of God's call on your life, I'm being called to go go. Don't wait. Most of us are being called to do extraordinary things in the context of ordinary lives that are seen by no one. It is no less the work of the kingdom. So my question that I just want to leave you with is really twofold. First of all, what have you made a lower priority in your life in order to follow Jesus? Is there anything Again, Tim Keller says about these disciples that God was calling, Jesus was telling them, I want priority over your family and I want priority over your career. Those are two biggies for us even down to this very day. So if you've responded to this call to follow Jesus, what have you made of secondary priority in order to follow him? And if the answer is nothing, then I would encourage you to reconsider the personal nature of the call. And then have you responded to the call. Again, some of you are being called to do extraordinary things seen by many. Most of us are called to live ordinary lives, doing ordinary things seen by few. In both instances, it is significant kingdom work. All of us live in an extraordinary time. Whether we're called to do extraordinary things or ordinary things, we all live in an extraordinary time. The kingdom is broken in. With Jesus Christ. I love the song that we're about to, to, we're about to sing. Hear the call of the kingdom. Hear the call of the kingdom. Lift your eyes to the king. There's a reorientation to the reality of all things. Jesus Christ is king and he is coming back. In the meantime, how do we live? King of heaven, we will answer the call. We will follow. Bringing hope to the world. Filled with passion. Filled with power. To proclaim salvation in Jesus' name. This is what life is about. For the moments that we have in our life, let us be people who live the reality of the kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for recording this gospel for us. I'm th- so thankful that we have the gospel uh, according to four different people, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, same gospel. Lord, you knew that we would need to hear it again and again and again. And so, Lord, let that which is um, familiar by your grace, known well by many of us, be something that continues to serve to reorient us to what is real and to what is true. But when we think about repentance and belief in the gospel, help us to really take to heart how significant that is, how life-changing it is, and how you give us the ability and the, and the strength to make that change in our lives. And Lord, this call that you gave to these disciples is a call that extends down to this very day to join you in the work of building your kingdom. Now we pray that you would give us the grace to respond faithfully to the call that you have placed on each one of us in this extraordinary age in which we live. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.